HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paris Gourmet, delivering specialty foods and ingredients right to your restaurant, bakery, and bar. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement, and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own firsthand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12-episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan, from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including Chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain educate and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon follow the journey on heritage radio and subscribe on itunes stitcher or anywhere else you get your podcasts and don't forget to follow us on instagram at we are opening soon and at tillit nyc
Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Thanks for joining us. On every episode of The Line, as I set out to track the trajectory of my guest's career, we really begin by talking about their childhood. We dig back to those first food memories where they may have tasted and smelled grandma's cooking, or that time where eating a dish or spice for the first time just made it all click. Since parents are so often contributing to one's love of food and desire to get into the culinary industry, it would be impossible to introduce today's guest, Oliver Zabar, without mentioning his father and his grandparents. His father, Eli Zabar, was born in 1943, the youngest child of the founders of Zabar's Lewis and Lillian. Lewis came to the United States through Canada from Ukraine in the early 1920s and originally rented a stall in a farmer's market. And since 1973, Lewis and Lillian's youngest son, Eli, who is, of course, Oliver's father, has been opening food and concepts around Manhattan with almost too many to call out and name check. They have, by my count, and Oliver, correct me uh, once we get started, but 15 locations or so in the family of businesses spanning nearly every type of culinary concept. They have markets, event spaces, grab-and-go cafes and kiosks, a wholesale operation, a flower shop, some bars, gift shops, and standalone restaurants. Just like his father, Oliver has, of course, gotten into the business. He went to NYU, where he majored in operations at the Tisch School for Hospitality and Sports Management, and during college, he spent time working at the Butter Group. Upon graduating, he stayed in New York and worked with his dad. It was then that Oliver had his own ideas for the family brand, and they developed the concept for Eli's Night Shift, which is a daytime cafe that transitions to a bar in the evening. Oliver recently opened Devon, a cocktail bar located on the Lower East Side, which by Zabar standards is pretty far away from the core operations. And he's also working on a bakery that will open on the Lower East Side next door to Devon. So today we'll be talking about growing up as part of a New York City culinary power family, that famous last name and how it can help or hurt you. We'll talk about mentorship and also talk a lot about his new concepts and how the ones that are already open are coming along. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So before we dig into your childhood education and your personal projects, we do have to talk a little bit about just being a Zabar. Some people might think that having that last name would just be a golden ticket to, to doing a project. So I want to talk about the business dynamic when working with your family. I work with my brother. You're obviously involved to a certain extent with, with your family, even on your own individual projects. So what is the dynamic like between you and your father? And how has it evolved over time from working for him to now operating your own projects, really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, as you probably know, it's not always easy working with your family, but there's a lot of pluses to it. Um, having someone like Eli as your father, you basically have a teacher throughout your life. So we've, I feel for the majority of my years growing up, I was really learning from him, watching him, what, what he did I wanted to do, what, what he would say I would say. Uh, what he liked, I liked. So, yeah. And you had, as you grow up together and you kind of see un, see where things are going, we start to learn from each other. You know, he's a very old school guy. He has very old concepts. And uh, as you know, and as most people see, like the world of food is tra- changing every single day. Um, you know, he's still getting a hang of the iPhone, <laughs> which is uh, is always great to see. But... I feel we went from kind of a a teacher and a student to kind of partners where we have a great dialogue and we're constantly figuring out problems together and working through things and using the old school, new school method to get through. 
I want to ask about your uh, grandmother. Your grandfather did pass away before you were born. So uh, can you talk a little bit about her and also your uncles and how all of that shaped the the family dynamic in, in respect to the businesses, just being around all those people who you've now said old school. I don't know if your uncles are old school as well, but um, you have kind of a, a classic family New York business. Um, for those that aren't familiar with it, can you talk a little bit about what Zabar's, how it started, how how it's evolved, and kind of what it's known for as a, as a a New Yorky, maybe Jewishy, markety deli type thing? Yeah. So as uh, a lot of people don't know, my grandfather. Louis Zabar passed away when my dad was six, so he was the youngest of the three brothers. Um, and at that point in time, the my two older, his two older brothers and his my uncles jumped in, and both of them had kind of gone off on different roads of law and more finance related. But you know, being a family business, you got to come back and you got to take it over. So, um, I mean, I was a kid when my grandmother was alive, so I really I kind of remember her as a this old, old, very much older woman who was very quiet. But, um, you know, Zabar's is a New York institution. It is the large orange letters that you hear in Seinfeld, that you hear in Sex and the City, that you see across the country, that I have friends in Florida who people are saying, oh, like, we got your catalogs, and we got this, and we got that, and oh, I love, love Zabar's. Every time I come there, um, so, you know, the the biggest misconception is I consider myself part of the East Side Zabar family. I grew up in that, but I spent a lot of time as a kid going over to the West Side, spending running around the store, which is this big kind of old school Jewish deli where it's you know there's a lot of Jewish aspects to it, but there's also a lot of kind of just your basic grocery store, you know, like the the mounds of coffee still in the the bags and the cheeses and the old man behind the counter slicing the smoked fish. So it's this quintessential just experience going into, I guess, what many people would look at as like a, a fine food establishment. It's beyond your basic grocery store. And and what was it like being a kid? You know, you get to run around. You have the op. The, the opportunity, the the amazing kind of inside aspect to, all right, you can run into the back, you can see them restocking shelves, you can kind of probably go a little bit everywhere you wanted to go as a kid. So you see your your uncles and your dad, you're, they're doing the business side, they're, you know, your father's more forward facing. Did you know when you were a kid that you were part of something that was unique or did it just feel so normal because you were immersed in it every single day? I mean, I think it felt very normal. But at the same time, like it's not every day you get to see a hundred pound wheel of Parmesan cheese or you get to see tons of smoked fish. So we growing up in food, it was kind of, it was, was normal, but it was exciting. You know, every day we on the weekends as kids, me, my brother, my twin brother, Sasha and my dad, we'd all get dressed in the same same outfit with our blue vests. And we we'd go to work with dad and we would basically like we'd march around the store after him. And then when we got bored, we'd start running through the backs of the store. And you're talking about spaces about 30,000 square feet. They're warehouses, they're gigantic stores just filled to the, the brim, breaking at the brim of food. But. I think yeah, it, was, it wasn't until I got older that I realized that what, is, what we were creating was really special. Did you or, or your brother ever have non-culinary or hospitality dreams? I, I wonder, was there ever a defiant moment? You're a teenager and you say to mom or dad, I, I just, I don't want to be a part of Zabar's. Like, 
I'm going to go be a, who knows, a painter, a fireman, uh, a sports agent, I, something that just would like to be defiant, but also uh, craft your own narrative, maybe a little bit away from Zabar's. Uh, honestly, no. I mean, it was, it was so ingrained into food, just, and you know, whatever type of food you want to get into, they would have been happy. But my dad took his, his work home with him every single day. It wasn't like a lawyer or a banker would leave the office and kind of leave his, turn his computer off. He'd come home with boxes of things he'd made and pastries and meats and cheeses and everything surrounded. Every family vacation was food related. Um, we would, you know, we grew up going to, we, my parents have a house in the south of France. And we grew up there and you'd get there and it was like day one, you'd take the starter, his 35 year old starter, you'd start mixing it. You make bread for that night. You go to the market that morning, you'd shop for everything. It, it was so ingrained into us that, you know, my brother did a stint in finance at one point. I did a summer working for a family friend at his film production company and, Everyone kind of just migrated back to food. It was just, it's what we knew. We didn't, we, we didn't know anything else. So you, you obviously, you, you make the, the decision that you're going to stay in the business and you end up going to Tisch and you're studying hospitality uh, and you get involved with Butter Group. And Butter is really, they are a, uh, they're a nightclub organization, right? They're a hospitality business that's really focused on pretty large-scale bars. Um, a lot of them are super famous. One Oak uh, is the one that probably a lot of people have heard of from from just being all around with celebrities and, and TV and such. So I want to know about that experience. At that time, was it valuable for you from a business perspective? Were they kind of utilizing you because you were a New York guy who was going to school in New York and you probably had a lot of people around that age that were coming in? So was it like a symbiotic relationship where, where you were being helpful to them to get people in the clubs or were you more on like the business development side a little bit further removed from, from that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, so actually if you back up a little bit, I was going to school in Florida before mm -hmm. I ended up transferring to NYU and... I worked for a summer for Michael Stillman, who had this amazing experience growing up. Michael Stillman has Fourth Wall Restaurant Group, you know, Quali Italian, Don Angie, all these great places. He'd done a, a rotational program in Di Danny Meyer's uh, company. So he said, you know what, Oliver, like, I'm going to do the same thing that Danny did for me. You're going to spend a summer in one of my restaurants, and you're going to rotate from front of house, back of house, under house. You know, I went everywhere. I was prepping. I was running food. I was bar backing. And... And at the same time, I was also working for a very old school kind of hospitality guy named Steven Greenberg, who became famous for the Roxy disco back in the 70s and 80s. And I was working for him on my Saturday nights for free because I was so interested in management and what it took to run these large scale operations. And it was there that I met people from the Butter Group. So you know, I went back to school for the summer and I came back and like the following summer for, and I was interning there in the back of house. I was kind of, I'd had a lot of time on the floor and I said to them, you know, I'd love to learn the back end, you know, the accounting, the office work, the day-to-day -day operations, inventory. So I spent the best summer there and I had a mentor there named Frank McHugh who had, you know, super old school kind of guy, had been in the business forever and he and we were sitting one day and he said, what are, you, what are you doing down in Florida? Why, why are you, what are you studying down there? What are you getting out of it? You clearly like working. Why don't you get, come back to NYU and work in the city and 
he's like, if you come back to New York, we'll keep your job going for as long as you want. And I kind of had this like aha moment, like, what am I doing? And, you know, I transferred to NYU because they had a great hospitality program. I figured if I was going to go anywhere, I, would, I should come back to New York. My brother was at the hotel school at Cornell. And I, through a crazy turn of events, I ended up floor managing at One Oak for about a year, a year and a half while I was going to school. So I got the best management experience you can imagine. I worked with some really great people and it was great. I was, you know, I was going to class every day and learning things and then coming and trying the, to... The intensity of that must have been extreme because that was, uh, at its height, maybe the hardest club to get into the United States, possibly. Like, just uh, probably incredible sales volume, really high uh, a- amount of just revenue coming through the doors every single night. And also, you've got to deal with all the club bullshit that every bar and every club has to deal with. So how were you managing all that while still going to school? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's college, so you, like, choose your classes. You, take, <laughs> you would go, like, later and... Um, I mean, I was just, I was focused on working and kind of just finishing up school. And I was working with some really great people there who were, saw that I was younger than them and interested and hardworking. And they really took me under their wing and they would show me the ins and outs and kind of the the life balance of, you know, it's tough. You'd go in at nine o'clock at night and leave at six o'clock in the morning. And, but for me, I was 22 years old. I had more energy than anyone. You can pull that off definitely at, at that time. And it was an excitement of being there. Totally. And so... You're in the clubs and you've got this culinary background and now you've got some professional training as to, to go along with your, uh, with your college learning. So do you immediately jump back into the Zabar's family business? Like what's your next thing that you do right after you graduate? What's, what's the next step that you take and, and how did you decide what you, where you wanted to go? Yeah, I mean, so I graduated that summer and was kind of figuring out what to do, you know, like, do I want to go back and work for the family? At the time, we really only had a, a couple restaurants and the the pop-up short stores and um, the essentials that we call them and Grand Central, but we didn't really have anything that was kind of more like nightlife-y, restaurant-y, that was really I want to like, sink my teeth into. So I went and spent the next three months working at for John Nydick and Jim Kearns at a place called The Happiest Hour that had just opened a couple months previously. And it was there I ended up working with a lot of these big industry famous bartenders like Brian Miller and Jim Kearns and Sean Saunders. And I started learning the details of cop making cocktails and syrups and kind of it was it was great. It was fusing the culinary world of food and flavor and smell and spice with hands-on running around bartending. So that that was great. And it was there I met uh, my current GM and beverage director, Sean Saunders. And shortly into that, my dad basically said, he's like, you're a, co- you're a college graduate, bar backing, bartending at a cocktail bar in Greenwich Village. He's like, this is not what I had planned for my son. Come back, work for me, and let's open a bar together. Let's open what you want. We At the time, we had had this space on 79th and 3rd, and he always knew he wanted to do a night concept there. He didn't know what, he didn't know what it would look like, what it would feel like, but he wanted to do something at night. So he said, come back and build your dream. So I said, great. We came back. And this was the really the first time we started working together very closely every day, hands-on. And I came back and we started building and developing what would become Eli's Night Shift, but really set the 
base of a concept of a a cafe that would serve coffee, pastries, sandwiches, soup, salads during the day, and then turn into a full bar at night. And it was like you had no idea what was being served during the day if you went there at night. And if you went there at night, you would know there was a day. And was that based on the fact that you thought that the space could work well in both ways or you just thought this is a a revenue structure that people haven't explored as much like we can really kill it during the day and then at night we can transition into cocktails and maybe you have a a customer base and a b customer base and they don't necessarily cross over right like you were attacking different people with the different day parts to a certain extent exactly i mean rent in new york is astronomical you're paying and you're paying 24 hours a day so you might as well utilize right every hour that you're paying and the Europeans have been doing this for years. You know, this whole idea of you go to the cafe in the morning, you get your croissant and you get your coffee. And on your way home at night, you grab a glass of wine before heading home. And being such Francophiles and spending so much time in Europe and Paris, especially, my dad had this real idea of, you know, they've been doing this for years seamlessly. Why can't we do it here in the United States? So that was really the basis of it. When most people come up with a concept and they really start solidifying on the idea, the next step is often you put together a business plan and you go to secure the funding. You said many times your dad is old school and you've worked a lot with old school guys. Uh, there's, there's two types of old school guys. The old school guy who says, pitch me your idea. They hear the idea. They love it. Off to the race is running. There's somebody else that says, show me the number, show me the number, show me the numbers, right? I'm curious... What was that process like? Is your dad a blend of the two or is he more of an idea guy and then we'll figure out the details later on? He's an idea guy and we'll figure out the details later on. He's a, I have an idea, you have an idea, great, let's run with it. Let's, let's build it right now. You know, we're lucky enough to have a whole team of carpenters and builders and architects that work in our company. So it was like, you know, the joke is always like most projects take much longer because, than they're supposed to because there's so many ideas floating around. You know, you're grabbing the good ones. You're changing things. You don't actually nail anything down until maybe the final week. And I mean, literally nail things into the wall because we're going to move this here. We're going to put that there. It's, it's constant. Yeah, a lot of people, when they open, the biggest questions that they have really are GCs, permits, zoning, real estate property acquisition, all these things in New York are, they're just floating in the ether. And like, if you don't have a good friend who's done it right before you, you have no idea. You say, I don't know, how do I find a contractor, right? So Zabar's has obviously opened many things before. Do you, do you use the same people on every single project? Yeah, um, there's a guy named Richard Lewis who is probably, if you're sitting in a restaurant right now, he's probably designed it, built it, been the architect for it. He's done everything. And, you know, we became very close. He's not only our architect, but he's also my dad's best friend. And he's been with us for 30 years. Um, he's done all Keith McNally's projects. He just, he's doing all the Jody Williams and Isodi projects. So, so everything goes through him. Everything goes through him. And then we have a team of in-house guys from a carpenter who does fine carpentry woodworking to basically a GC who gets it done. And everything is in-house. And all of your current projects, even on the LES, same team? Everything. That's awesome. So that, that makes it very easy to kind of streamline things. You have a lot of those pieces already in place, and then 
you kind of just need the idea and the and the white box, and then you can kind of move forward. Yeah, and we're very lucky to, that my dad's been doing this for almost 50 years. So we have lots of pieces from previous projects that get reused in cool. every project. And you're walking to something like, wasn't that light? Yeah, that light was in the place on 91st. And you're like, yep. Does, does Zabar's have sort of a, a warehouse or something that is a catch-all for lots of pieces that 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 either get utilized or kind of rotated out do you have a spot in jersey or something where cast-offs get sent away yeah we're actually lucky enough to have a an old vinegar factory up on 91st between first and york and originally it was a grocery store with a restaurant that we've now turned into an event space but it's called the vinegar factory because when we bought it, it was literally making vinegar and mustard and my dad used to say on hot days when the wood would kind of swell up you could smell the vinegar coming out of it. Um, and it's just this beautiful warehouse up there that houses everything imaginable. And it's where our, car- our carpenter teams work out. It's where we store everything. We have everything from beautiful light fixtures to doors to cold cases to refrigerators. A- everything you could imagine. You could build five, ten stores out of the stuff that we have in storage. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back more with Oliver Zabar and start talking uh, about his personal concepts that he's developed on the Lower East Side, stick with us here on The Line. Paris Gourmet delivers the finest specialty imported and local foods directly to chefs. For over 35 years, Paris Gourmet has sourced specialty foods from around the world. Their Meadowlands headquarters services the New York Tri-State area. Paris Gourmet delivers Vermont butters, Cacao Noel chocolates, ravi fruit purees, cuisine tech ingredients, and Bon Patissier Viennoiserie to your kitchen. Paris Gourmet brings the world to your doorstep. They're close when professionals need them most. Learn more at parisgourmet.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. We're talking with Oliver Zabar, and during the uh, earlier portion of the show, we were really talking about getting involved in the family business and everything that you took away from being a kid and, and then after college. Uh, but recently, you, after Eli's Night Shift, you've opened up a project of your own. It's on the Lower East Side. It's called Devon. Can you talk a little bit about that new project? Yeah, gladly. Um, so Devon is what I would call my second, I guess Night Shift was the first dream project. Devon would be the second dream project. Um, I live down on the Lower East Side, down on East Broadway. And the idea of doing a concept in the neighborhood where I lived that I felt didn't have a place where you could go get a great cocktail, a great bite, and kind of just hang out was, wasn't totally there. There's, you know, there's good cocktail bars, there's good restaurants, but there wasn't a great fusion of the both. So... I got we got super lucky, and there was a restaurant space came up. It was the old Lucky Bee space, and I was I was actually in Patagonia at the time, hiking, and I got a text from a broker saying, "There's an amazing space. You guys need to jump on this." And when I got back, I went there and I said, "This is it. This is the one." And we so we took hold of that, and we kind of we built it out in about eight months, six to eight months, and it's what I would call a mid-century modern 
cocktail bar, restaurant, kind of fuses the both. We worked with a really great designer named Lisa Galano, who, again, took a million ideas that I threw at her and honed them in. And I partnered up with uh, my old friend, Sean Saunders, who had I'd worked with at Happiest Hour, and I said, let's do an amazing cocktail program. Um, our opening and consulting chef for the project was a guy named Ken Addington, who uh, opened Five Leaves. He was great. And we started, we didn't have a business model. We didn't have, we just had an idea of what we wanted to build down there. And it was a lot of throwing ideas against the wall. And we named it Devon after my mother, who is alive and well, and is a real, you know, everyone knows Eli, but she's really a, the big foodie. She started a place called Loaves and Fishes out in uh, Bridgehampton. That is a institution out in Long Island. And she's the one who was always cooking at home and creating new dishes. And I just felt there was, there was a lot of Eli out there and, and she needed her moment. When you say that you throw a million ideas at, at your designer, I'm curious if you use Pinterest, mood boards, do you cut things out of magazines? Uh, aesthetics are so important in a restaurant to define yourself beyond just the cocktails and the food, which is a, a customer forward facing way. Uh, people obviously eat with their eyes and they drink with their eyes, but also spaces in New York are competitively beautiful. You really have to show up when you open up a space in New York. So how do you ideate and then how do you execute those ideas really from start to finish? Yeah. Um, I mean, Pinterest, I had never really used it and it became my best friend. I would spend hours and hours on there creating mood boards and sub boards and boards within boards of ideas. And I would you know, constantly reading and looking and researching places and cutting things out of magazines and kind of just bringing ideas to the table. And I'd, I had a, I'd fallen in love with this mid-century kind of look, this very California kind of 50s, 60s look. And, you know, I had a lot of influence from people like designers like Prouvé and these French architects who at a moment in time created things that had never been seen. And I knew I wanted the place to stand out. We were, you know, the Lower East, we were in an old tenement building on the Lower East Side and I didn't want to just hammer a couple boards together and build benches. I really wanted a place that was a wow moment when you walked in. And working with Lisa, working with Richard, and even my dad, he everyone kind of took those ideas and they elevated it and brought ideas to the table. Um, and we actually reused a lot of pieces from old restaurants. And we have this huge, great, beautiful terrazzo bar that is actually made up of old tabletops that were once in a restaurant we had uptown. And, you know, there's chips in them and cracks and breaks that kind of give it this old look to it. But those were all from a place called Eli's Table Uptown. That's awesome that you have the ability to to reintegrate all those old pieces into the new. You spoke a little bit about that. So Sean does the cocktails and you had Ken develop the menu. Uh, so you have a bar that has pretty much a full food program. Um, you don't have a, a chef that, that oversees kind of the creative aspects and changes, or, or maybe Ken does come in every once in a while. I'm curious on the menu side, uh, do you oversee the kitchen? Do you now have sort of a, a sous chef that oversees the kitchen? And um, what's the management structure like at, at Devon? Are you kind of the day-to-day -day on the ground, or have you been able to take a step back since it's been open a little bit for a while now? 
Yeah, so we we know Ken kind of opened, got us open, and it was great, and kind of took a step back. And we have a great kitchen manager in there right now. But the menu changes really come from me, and I tap sources around me. I have a lot of friends who are chefs, and just really my parents and my brother has a big culinary background. And I, we kind of look at what we're doing in other places. You know, we have such a large company making so many things. We can utilize what's being made in other kitchens and kind of do these bulk orders. But we've, we, at, at first, I, people, my, my mother would always say, like, what are you? Are you a bar or are you a restaurant? And I'd always say, you know, we're a bar, we're a bar restaurant. Like, what do you mean? And kind of as we progressed, we definitely started leaning towards the bar program more. And we kind of fixed the menu and altered it to be more bites and kind of like sharing things. We've always eaten as a family in this very sharing manner. You know, you order half the menu. We order the whole entire menu and everyone tries everything. And that kind of has always developed the menus we make where you, I want you to try everything. I want you to order two people, order five things. And maybe you don't finish everything, but to have a taste of everything. So... And we've now scaled the menu back and it's, we're adding more bites and we're going to change it for summer. But I'm there first thing in the morning and I, I try and leave before the night ends. Um, usually during the week, I'm, I, I can get out a little bit earlier. On the weekends, I'm there usually to the end. Um, you know, sometimes me and Sean like to sit down at the end of the night and review everything and kind of go over things. But yeah, I mean, between me and Sean, we're basically balancing everything there is to do payroll organizing staffing inventory so even though you have sort of the the zabar's business to fall back on you you're using it as like a support apparatus but you you're still handling a lot of the day-to-day directly at, at devon yeah very much so i mean we're lucky that we kind of use we are we operate on our own kind of we're at this like outlier all the way downtown like you have to remember everything else is in the 80s, 90s uptown. Yeah. But we utilize our butcher up there, our cheesemonger, our produce guys to get us, you know, the best cuts of meat, the best of cheeses, the best produce. And, you know, if we're, we want to do something off menu for the day or special for the weekend, be like, hey, guys, we make so much stuff in-house. You know, for a while, we, were, we still make amazing sausages. And we, for the winter, we did a sausage with a house-made pretzel that was amazing. And it was helping uptown kind of use up the, the product that they have because everything's made fresh daily and it has to be used. So all the stores work symbiotically to help each other use things up. I'm curious about your, your strategies for both evaluating and then and quantifying success. So do you run uh, do you run P&Ls? And when you sit down uh, with Sean, do you both have uh, growth strategies stre- sketched out for a year or five years for the business? Um, I, I just want to know how do you how do you plan and how do you forecast at, at a place like Devon? Yeah, we run P&Ls. Constantly, we get the numbers every night, every every week. There's a breakdown, and you know, as you know, like labor in New York is through the roof, and yeah. prices are through the roof. And as you kind of chisel away at those big blocks of of basically money going out the door, it, you know, it feels really good to see your sales rise and those numbers get smaller and smaller, and where you're slowly getting to a place where you can say, ah, we're we're doing it, we're happy. Um, you know, s- success. It is always financial. You know, you'd, you'd like to make a living in the restaurant business. That'd be great. A lot of people don't. 
But sometimes success to me is seeing the place packed on a Friday night and there's an hour wait and people can't get a seat. And I, I look at Sean and I smile. I'm super happy that people are coming in or, you know, people come in and try a cocktail and they say, this cocktail was the best I've ever had. This changed my life. This was amazing. And just seeing what we're seeing that all our hard work pay off is also at times what I view as success to me. And it makes, it makes me feel great that people see what we're doing and love it. I want to know about your philosophy, uh, to business when you're making decisions. Uh, now that you're, you're the outlier, you're, you're kind of on your own. I know you still rely a lot on the infrastructure, but What's your philosophy to to growth and to pursuing new projects as you look forward past the success of Devin and you're thinking about which dreams that you have to to let die and which ones are really a dream that maybe you take to Sean or your brother, or your dad or your mom or whoever it might be your next business partner? How do you how do you decide? I mean, I surround myself with very good people who I value their opinions and usually it's it's people close in the company, friends, confidants. Um, and, you know, every day is a learning process. And I think every day, it's easy that we opened the place. It was great. We're going, we're doing well. And it's easy to say, great, on to the next project, forwards. But you have to remember that you need to like take a step back and you, know, you need to see how things go after year one. And I think I've, originally when I was working these nightclubs, I was like, oh, I want to be in the nightclub business. And that quickly died. And, um, I think then I was like, I want to be in the restaurant business. And just opening Devin as a restaurant, you realize how much time and labor and prep and just financially how difficult it can be. So scaling back a little bit into more of the bar world with you know, a good bar with good bites. I think people are eating differently. So moving forward, I'd, I'd like to continue to do neighborhood places that are just good food, good drinks. You know, we've always, we've always talked about opening a Mexican restaurant, you know, a Jewish family doing some Mexican. I mean, I feel like all the best dishes in our restaurants always are, end up being these Mexican dishes. Um, with so many guys, Spanish guys in the company, we're always talking about ideas for that. So what is your thoughts on your own leadership style? You've learned from the best. Now you're really at the top of the pyramid um, you're young, uh, you've worked in some pressure environments. How do you deal with all the trials and tribulations of uh, a place that serves food and serves alcohol that's open very late, tempers flare, there can be a lot of people. I, I want to know how have you sort of carved out your own leadership style amongst all the difficulties of operating a, a New York City restaurant? Yeah, I mean, being a leader in these situations is hard. I've always said, you know, working with everyone on a day-to-day basis, you obviously you become friends, then having to discipline is can be very difficult. Um, so I think people, like, I pick up on everything. I see what's going on around. I make suggestions. I tell people how I want things done. And I think the biggest thing that I, I really learned from my father was do it yourself. If, you know, that's that's the best way to show leadership. And you know, when the dishwasher calls out, I put on a dishwashing shirt and pants and I get in the dish pit and I start doing that. Um, and I think making decisions along the way, a lot of the time I, when I'm, we're working and it's a busy night and I kind of see things that I don't like or I like, I 
I will most of the time we'll make notes and then we'll read with Sean at the end of the end of the night how I saw things. You know, we'll, we'll tweak them there, but just for the both of us to keep learning. So I feel like I make always make a list. I always keep, and I I'll tell him, and then he kind of executes them. So, but most of the time it's it's doing it yourself. I feel like that's the best form of leadership. If everyone around everyone around you sees you doing the work and getting your hands dirty, there's no one out there that won't respect that. Let's talk about some of the new project projects, uh, whatever you're comfortable talking about. Would love to hear about what the next thing might be. If it's the next door location, if you've got something maybe further down the line, what are you working on? So right now we're in the midst of opening a bakery right next door to Devon, uh, basically through the through the wall. The idea for opening downtown was always that it would fuse the bar, the restaurant, and our baked goods aspect of our business. You know, we're this company was built on bread and baking. So we always thought it would be fun to do something like that. And we had a, we found our, our space and then there's a space next door and the landlord was the same landlord. So everything kind of came together and we're building well, the working title right now is Eli's Broom Street Bakery. And the idea is to build a, what we call our essentials downtown. So we have a double deck oven in there and we're going to be baking fresh bread, pastries, um, rolls, baguettes, everything on a day-to-day basis. And the idea is that we're, you'll be making in small batches, so it'll all be hot, constantly coming out. And then we'll take those baguettes and we'll make sandwiches for the day. And we'll have salads and some soups and some juices. And you know, we roast all our own coffee uh, in Manhattan at the Vinegar Factory. So with our coffee and that, there's no one down there when... Doing fresh breads, fresh things like that. You know, there's all these salad places, but there's something about a fresh baguette, a hot baguette, right out the oven that you can't beat. So, you know, we figured, and then the whole idea was that the bakery would then help the restaurant. We'd be doing all our own bread, all our pastries for brunch. Um, We'd be doing different cakes and fruit tarts for dinner and for dessert, and that they'd be working together. Um, You know, maybe the kitchen has some leftover ingredient that we could then throw into, you know, a pie next door, a quiche next door. But everything, again, working together. Um, So the bakery is what we're really working on right now and really excited about. And, you know, there's, there's no major projects on the horizon. We have a, a, we have a, baker, a gluten-free bakery in New York called No Glue on uh, 90th and Madison, 91st and Madison. And you know, we're, we like that, and that's doing really well. And, you know, the whole gluten-free craze right now, we're definitely maybe looking to expand that. Um, Devin has a, does have a downstairs that we're hoping to maybe build into kind of a speakeasy bar type of situation um but other than that it's really just devin the bakery night shift uptown we put a pizza oven in there recently and we're making some really delicious pizzas how do you split your time if at all between night shift and devin or have you kind of turned over night shift to to someone else at this point in time i I spend a lot of my life on the six train uh, going back back and forth um i have some great guys up there who are really passionate about the cocktail program, the beer program, you know, Night Shift does all local beers from New York City only. So I have a couple guys who've been there, since, one of them since day one, a guy named Chris, who have really taken it under, uh, taken under their wing and are caring for it. But I go there, I try and go up a couple times a week. If I'm not, I actually usually find myself there daily. 
um, just going back and forth and checking on things. And it's it, you, I learned quickly that nothing – you have to do it yourself to really get it done the way you want to. And it's hard when you're not there to make sure things are going the way you want and done the way you want. Um, but again, kind of like my dad who drives around New York City in his Eli's bread van, he – bounces to every single store every single day and checks in and makes sure things are going the way he wants them done. Even even in a world of text messages and emails and, and you can FaceTime all, all day long, just a five-minute conversation with someone can often accomplish a lot more than, than the email ever could of just getting your point across. Yeah, being there and talking to them and kind of working through things and you know, everyone who works for us is really creative and they want to be making new things every day. And so it's, it's inspiring every day. You go up there and you're working on a new pizza, a new dish, a new cocktail, and kind of just talking it through. You kind of leave, you can usually leave pretty happy and feeling good about the hand, leaving your baby in the hands of these people. For me, as, as someone who operates a, a small business, a, a restaurant business with my family, I think one of the most interesting things for my brother and I to talk about is actually what we're not good at, what we hope to get better at. I've had people on the show that say, I just know how to cook. And some people say, I just know how to find good real estate. You know, um, I'm curious, what do you think you're really, really strong at? What is one of the things that you uh, think that is sort of a, a deficiency that you'd love to get better at? Uh, how do you think you might get better at that? I think business owners are always really interested to hear about that from from someone else in the industry. Um, so yeah, something I'm good at is you know, the pressure of all this doesn't it doesn't really get to me. I kind of I can definitely stay cool and calm in these situations, um, and I feel like that's usually a plus in in this business. But things to get better at are you know delegating, kind of in back to the leadership, you know, kind of telling people how I want things done and in a way that they can understand and kind of agree with. Um, definitely kind of looking at the, the numbers and crunching those numbers. I'm not a, not a numbers guy. I've never been a big math guy. So looking, looking at those and, um, you know, I'm, I'm always very open to ideas and people's suggestions and, some, some, it depends who they're coming from. It's coming from my dad, who has about a million ideas he wants to give me every day. You kind of don't want to listen to them, but someone like my mom, who kind of chimes in every now and then, or my brother. Um, but I feel like ever since we opened Devin, I'm, I'm constantly texting other friends in the industry, asking for advice. And I think the biggest thing is you need to like get, get the name out there. You need to really like hustle where you are, you know, we're doing a big outreach program to the people who live in the neighborhood, you know, the hotels and I'm, I, I can tend to be a little bit shy. So I guess that's my biggest downfall. Interesting for someone who spent many, many years in a nightclub <laughs> that you'd say that, uh, because my brother is my business partner and I spend all day with him, whether, whether I like it or not, I'm curious about you and your brother, uh, Obviously, both growing up in the business, and you said he went to hospi- uh, to Cornell for um, hotel management. Any potential down the line that you and Sasha would ever partner up on something in the hotel world? Is that something that that you could ever see yourself doing together? It it seems like it could be the natural evolution of a restaurant, bar, food process to maybe just open up 
a building yourself, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think we both know how much work a hotel takes. Yeah. Um, he's been immensely successful up in Connecticut. He has a juice bar up there. He was in the. He was one of the first people in the electronic cigarette world. You know, and before all this, he did stints at Danielle. He worked for Jean George at the Mark Hotel. Um, so he's actually just coming back in a few weeks to fully start working for the for the family business. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was, we were the three of us were all together the other day, and my dad said, you know, it's it's really great to all be working together again. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think going forward, any project I do, I'd love to include. Sasha, include Eli, include it's like that's the biggest thing. You know, everyone always says, "Oh, you're on your own." And I say, "Yeah, but everything I'm doing, I'm hoping, is helping the rest of our business. It's, you know, it's a family business, and everything we do, we do it together. So everything's going back to the it goes back to the original store idea core of the Zabar Eli Zabar group and family." There's no escaping it. You, you try to get out, but it keeps bringing you back. There's Everywhere you go, you can never escape it. There's nowhere to go except for forward with Zabars. Or further downtown. <laughs> uh, Oliver, thanks so much for being here, sharing a lot about your history, your story, your businesses, and uh, and talking a little bit about your your father and your mother and the, and the family as well. Uh, tell everyone where they can find Night Shift and Devin, the addresses and the website where they can uh, uh, check those spots out. Yeah, you can find Devin at 252 Broom Street. That's between Orchard and Ludlow. Or you can check us up on the web at uh, www.devin-nyc.com. And then you can go up to Night Shift at 189 East 79th Street, right on the corner of 79th and 3rd Avenue. You can't miss it. It's brightly lit and very inviting. And a little shout out for myself. Sorry, don't usually do this, but my brother and I just opened our Lower East Side location of Samisa Restaurant in the brand new Essex Market. You can find us at the corner of Essex and Delancey. Look for the neon red Essex Market sign. We're open there seven days a week. Would love for you to come by and say what's up. I'm usually behind uh, the register in the evening. So if you're a listener of the show, uh, would love to meet you in person and serve you some shawarma. So come and see us now on on uh, the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And thanks again for listening to the episode. You can always hear episodes on Heritage Radio's website, heritageradionetwork.org. You can find us on any podcast platform where you usually find your podcasts. And of course, we'll be back on Tuesday with another episode of The Line at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family and become a member. Thanks for listening.